Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and open them up to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. The passage we are coming to today is certainly one of the most challenging and controversial texts in all of the Scriptures. Um, We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, but in particular, verses 24 through 27 are those challenging verses. Now, some say that this is the most debated passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. Uh, Jerome, the 4th century theologian and historian, he cited nine different interpretations of this passage of Scripture amongst the early church fathers. One commentator said that the interpretations which have been offered on this text are almost legion. Another theologian called this passage a swamp he could not find his way out of. That's how I kind of felt this week, that I was in this swamp trying to get my way out of it because there's so much that you have to figure out in today's text. So many, many people who are much smarter than me have had differing interpretations on this passage. But I think we can understand it. I think that we'll see in the text itself that Gabriel came to give Daniel understanding, not confusion. So we can understand this text. Plus, we believe, it harbins at least, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, including today's text. So I think if we use sound principles of interpretation and thereby look for the most straightforward reading of this passage of Scripture, we can understand it, and we'll see in the text itself why we can understand it. But some people, by abandoning sound hermeneutics, have fallen into all sorts of fanciful and imaginative speculations that really take us away from the main focus of today's text. There's a uh, Peanuts cartoon where Linus is speaking to Charlie Brown... And he's interpreting a famous nursery rhyme for Charlie Brown. He says this, The way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. To which Charlie Brown responded, I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. Okay, so maybe that's how some of you guys feel about the passage we're going to look at today. But don't fear, without diminishing the complexity of today's passage... It is a lot more straightforward than the Linuses of the world would have you believe. So please stand now as we read today's text, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 20 and read all the way down to verse 27. We, we covered verses 20 through 23 last week as we began to look at, at the response that God gives to Daniel's prayer. Um, but we're going to read that again, walk back through that a little bit more, and then the main focus is going to be on those last few verses. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding." At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to the text this morning and a passage like this should drive each one of us to deep humility. This is a challenging passage to get our mind around and to understand exactly what it is that Gabriel is saying to Daniel. Father, I pray that you would keep us sinners from imposing upon the text what we wanted to say or, in, or, or making the text bend into our imaginations. Instead, Father, make us subject to the text. Make our minds, our hearts, our desires, our wills subject to the text. So, Lord, I pray that you give me a mouth to speak accurately, to preach this word accurately. And I pray, Father, that you give all of us ears to hear it accurately as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have friends who, when you watch a movie, or particularly when you go to the theater, they just can't get the movie? They, they just don't understand what's going on. I mean, if the plot is even somewhat more complicated than a Disney princess movie, they're sitting there going, I don't, I don't get what's happening here. I had a couple of friends like that in college. I won't mention their name because I know they sometimes listen to the podcast, although they probably wouldn't get that I'm talking about them. But they, we'd go to movies, and they would sit there, and both of them, they ended up getting married. The Both of them would sit there looking at each other and go, what's happening? I don't get it. I thought he was the bad guy. Right? And they're sitting there doing this the whole time, and you're sitting there going, come on. Now, now maybe some of you in here are that person, right? Now, when you come to today's text, I think all of us feel like that person. Especially verses 24 through 27, we're reading that, we're going, I, I don't get it. What's happening here? Who's this anointed one? What covenant? What, what is this? I don't get it. I think that's how we all probably feel. But as I said at the beginning, principles of good interpretation will allow us to grasp an understanding of this text. And the foremost of those principles is to read this text in its context. You guys have heard me say that many times. Kids, you've heard me say that many times. The key to interpreting biblical passages is to read them in their context. And the first bit of context that we need to remember is that verses 20 through 27 are God's response to Daniel's prayer of verses 1 through 19. Now, technically, the prayer only begins in verse 4 and goes through 19. 
and we technically only have God's actual response in verses 24 to 27, but those two halves of chapter 9, the first half is Daniel's prayer, the second half is God's response. We need to understand that context. Daniel, what we have here, this, this vision, this, this word, this prophetic word, is a response to a very specific thing that Daniel was praying. He was confessing sin, and he was pleading to God for something, and this this vision that's given to him is a response to that. And we need to understand that context or else it's like listening to, to one half of a conversation. Have you ever been on the phone and you're talking to someone and there's someone else in the room and they decide to try to jump into the conversation with you even though they can't hear what you're talking to the other person about? And they're saying things like, oh, oh, tell him this or whatever. And you're going, be quiet. You don't even know what we're talking about. Okay, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. If you go to verses 24 and 27 and just read those and say, well, what's this all about without understanding that this is the second half of a conversation, you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy stuff for verses 24 to 27. So as we read here, I want you to remember that portion of the context. Verse 20, we see here that Daniel was praying. While I was speaking and praying, and notice he's doing two things, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and then number two, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. So he's confessing the, the national sins of Israel, and he's asking for God to restore them to, to Jerusalem. Verse 24, when I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now that simply means it was around 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon or early evening. But it's interesting that Daniel says that. Why is it interesting? Well, where does the evening sacrifice take place? It's supposed to take place where? In the temple. But there is no temple right now. <laughs> the temple's actually been gone for, for about 70 years at this point. There is no temple, yet this just shows Daniel's faithfulness, that he still, he still measures his life, he still organizes his life around the worship of his God. And so he's still on temple time. Emma Kate wears a big orange watch. You see her wearing it sometimes. That watch is, is Noah time. So she knows what time it is where Noah is in California. And when he deploys, she'll change it to wherever he's at so that she always has Noah time right there. And so that's what Daniel has. He, he knows temple time. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, that's when he's going to the Lord in prayer. Verse 22. He made me understand. Now listen to the repeating of the word understand here. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So God answers his prayer. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So now we have, in verses 24 to 27, a message given to Daniel, which is an answer to his prayer, but... Daniel's been commanded to understand that answer. And if we're, in order for us to understand that answer, we need to look at even more context. So the first set of context is to understand this is an answer to prayer. But I also want you to remember from last week the strong covenantal aspect to this prayer. The strong covenantal aspect of this prayer. First of all, in verse 2, Daniel uses the, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. And then he appeals to the covenant steadfast love of God, the hesed of God in verse 4. And then he refers to God throughout the prayer as Adonai, which is the designation given to the dominant party in the covenants. And then he repeatedly mentions the people's failure to listen to the prophets. And who were the prophets? They were God's covenantal prosecuting attorneys. And then as we mentioned last week, this text is filled with formulaic references to Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28, 
which outlined the curses that God's people would incur if they broke the covenant. So covenant, 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 covenant is a major, major theme of Daniel's prayer. And what's more, the prayer is directly tied to the perpetual sign of the covenant, the Sabbath. Where do we read that the Sabbath is a perpetual sign of the covenant? You read about that in Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17. So how is it tied to the Sabbath? Well, let's back up a little bit. Go back to verses 1 and 2 in Daniel chapter 9. Let's read that for a second. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Okay, so let me pause right there. Daniel knew what this meant. For Jeremiah and Isaiah, specifically Isaiah in, verses four, in chapter 44 and 45, they predicted that Babylon would fall. Isaiah specifically predicted that a, a king named Cyrus, who I argued earlier is the same person as Darius, Cyrus would be used as God's instrument to return the Jewish people to their land. So that's the context here. And Daniel says this in verse 2, or the scripture says this in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book of the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely... 70 years. So the number of years that Daniel perceives from the book of Jeremiah that must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem is 70 years. 70 years. Now here's where the Sabbath context comes into play. And this is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle if we're going to understand verses 24 to 27 here in a minute. Jeremiah prophesied 70 years of Babylonian captivity. We read that in Jeremiah 25 Verses 11 through 14 and Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Let me just read a little bit of Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. But why 70 years? That's the question. Why did Jeremiah prophesy 70 years? Why that amount? Well, we need to keep digging into the covenantal context. In order to do that, we need to go to 2 Chronicles 36. Now, in 2 Chronicles 36, we read of why God's people have been led into exile, why they've gone into exile in Babylon. And then verse 21, if y'all can bring that up for me, we read that the exile had a purpose. And here's the purpose. 2 Chronicles 36, 21. That this exile was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath, listen to this, to fulfill 70 years. Did you hear what we're being told in Chronicles? The purpose of the 70 years. Why are there 70 years mentioned in Jeremiah? According to 2 Chronicles, it's a period of time when the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. Well, what on earth is that? What does it mean that the land enjoyed its Sabbaths? Well, for the answer to that, we need to jump over to Leviticus, specifically the covenantal sanctions of Leviticus chapter 25 and chapter 26. So Leviticus 25 says this, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep, listen to this, a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for the six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But on the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath 
to the Lord. So you just see what God has instructed the people of Israel. This is part of the covenantal agreement between God and his people. And that is that every seven years there's to be a Sabbath. Just as there's a Sabbath in your week of days, a week of years was to have a Sabbath as well so that the land could rest. And this is where the concept of a week of years is established in the scriptures. And the seventh year, as I said, was to be a Sabbath year. But even more than that, we read in the same passage in Leviticus that these Sabbath years were to accumulate and eventually lead to a climactic year called the year of Jubilee. So later in Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. So what we have is this accumulation of the Sabbaths, the accumulation of all these Sabbath rests, until you get to this this year of Jubilee, which was to happen on this 50th year. So every seven years, the land was to get a Sabbath rest. But then after seven sets of seven years, there was to be a year of Jubilee. And this was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It was an act of worship. The year of Jubilee was to be a year of redemption from slavery, a year of restoration for the land, a year of rest from work. But then we read in Leviticus 26 about these covenant curses that would come upon the people if they did not observe the Sabbaths or the Jubilee. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 33. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation. Hold on to that word. And your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then your land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So this is the context of Jeremiah's prophecy and of Daniel's prayer. Daniel knows that the 70 years of exile are 70 consecutive Sabbaths for the land to make up for the ignored Sabbaths of the previous 490 years of Israel's history. Seven times 70. And if you go back from the exile, 490 years, you come roughly to the dedication of the temple under Solomon. And what was one of the things Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8? He prayed that God would hear his people once they got ejected from the land. And sure enough, it came to pass. And we know that 1 Kings 8, as we talked about before, highly influenced Daniel's prayer. So from the temple's inception to the destruction of the temple, there were 490 years, give or take, of ignored Sabbaths. So that the, and then the land vomited the people out, and then the land lay dormant, resting, enjoying its Sabbaths back to back for 70 years. All right, so are, are you with me now? Okay, you've got your calculators out and you're doing things. Are you with me? Okay. This is the context of the 70 years. Now, all of this is tied directly to today's text. So with all of that context, the context of this being a prayer, the context of the covenantal language, and the context of the Sabbath and Jubilees, let us jump now into verses 24 
through 27. And I'm going to make three general observations about today's text as we walk through these verses. And here's the first one. The answer to Daniel's prayer revealed God's specific plot for history. The answer to Daniel's prayer reveals God's specific plot for history. Verse 24. Listen to this. Seventy weeks are decreed about, number one, your people, and number two, your holy city. So this is a direct response to what Daniel was praying for. Remember, he's praying for, he's confessing the sin of his people, and he's praying for the restoration of his city and of the temple. So 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens, and it's 70 weeks of years. And we see immediately how this is tied to the sabbatical and the jubilee. If you multiply 70 times 7, so this is 70 weeks, so 70 times 7, what do you get? 490 years. So what do we see? I'm, I'm going to bring a little chart up on the screen here. You can't do Daniel 9 without charts. Um, and so I'm going to bring a little chart up here on the screen. This is the only chart I'm going to give you today. I just want you to see, uh, I want you to see the, the symmetry here. You have 70 sabbaticals that the people of Israel ignored. And didn't obey. They didn't worship their God in the way they were called to worship their God. They broke covenant with their God. And that was the cause of the exile. One of the many causes. And that was 490 years. Then you have 70 years of exile where all those ignored Sabbaths are now being observed for 70 straight years. And after those Sabbaths are observed, there is the return from exile. But the problem is... The return from exile isn't going to provide the solution that the people need, the solution for the problems that led them into the exile in the first place. And so what Daniel gets is a word about 70 new sabbaticals that are going to be the ultimate solution to the exile. So in the 70 weeks of verses 24 through 27, we have 70 new Sabbaths, each unit of seven being a jubilee leading up to the 10th jubilee, which is the 70th week. The 70th week in today's passage of Scripture is the ultimate jubilee. It's jubilee times 10. And that's what we have. And we'll see that as we continue. An ultimate jubilee where final redemption, final restoration, and final rest is brought to bear. So, you see as Daniel reads Jeremiah, he he is anticipating not only a return from exile, but another thing that Daniel would have been anticipating as he reads Jeremiah, he would have been anticipating the new covenant outlined in Jeremiah 31. But God has already shown Jeremiah in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and then again he'll show him in chapters 10 and 11, that after the initial return of the exiles, there would other kingdoms would come and God's people would continue to suffer. And that's why Daniel's been so upset. He's been so perplexed. So God is now showing him that there's a greater deliverance yet to come. There's a greater return from exile yet to come. There's an ultimate jubilee that is yet to come. There's a new, new covenant that is yet to come. So now in verse 24, God's going to get very specific. He's going to mention six things that are going to be accomplished at the end of that 70 weeks. So let's look here. He says that the 70 weeks are, number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to put an end to sin. Number three, to atone for iniquity. Number four, to bring in an everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal both vision and profit. And number six, to anoint a most holy place. And then verses 24 through 27 are going to show us how that's going to happen. But just look at this list real quick here. Just look at verse 24. What do your gospel instincts tell you that that verse is about? It's all about Jesus. 
All six of those things are accomplished in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. These six things gloriously sum up Jesus' messianic work. The establishment of a new covenant. The bringing in of an ultimate jubilee. Now do you recall the passage that Demer read at the beginning of the service? Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 4. You realize that passage was about jubilee. It's a jubilee passage. And in Jesus' inaugural sermon, in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus comes into Nazareth, and he's in the, in the, uh, the synagogue, and he's given the, the scroll of Isaiah, he opens it up, and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jubilee. And then in verse 20 of Luke chapter 4, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled. In your hearing. The final jubilee has arrived in me. It's what Jesus is telling the people there in Nazareth. So now let's look at how these six gospel truths of verse 24 are going to be brought about. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem, and by the way, there's a couple of dates you can choose from here on that. There's 538 B.C. was when the decree was first put out, which is the first year of Cyrus's reign. But also we see that the decree was sort of um, reestablished and, and put into full motion in 458 B.C. And that date actually works better with the 490 years. But of course, that means you're looking for real strictness with the numbers. Now, let me just say a word on that real quick about the numbers. Just like last week, these numbers are rough equivalents to the actual years rather than exact mathematical statements. Now, why do I say that? I say that because numbers are highly symbolic in the Jewish mindset. So the 70 years of exile, most scholars believe, really only lasted about 65 years. Does that mean Jeremiah was wrong? No. The time period was roughly 70 years, but the number is rounded up to 70 for symbolic reasons. And we see many other examples of this in Scripture. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God tells Abram that his people would spend 400 years in uh, Egyptian slavery. But we read later on in the exact same text, also written by Moses, that that was 430 years. So was Moses wrong in one place and right in another place? No, the number was roughly 400 years. It's rounded to that number for, for symbolic reasons. Because in that same passage in Genesis 15, God speaks of how there would have to be like 40 generations of the Amorites would have to pass before the sin of the Amorites was, was complete so the people could then come in and take the promised land. So there's symbolic reasons for these numbers. Let me give you another example real quick. Matthew 18, 22. Jesus says to forgive your brother how many times? 70 times 7. Isn't it interesting? That's the exact same formula that we have in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 70 times 7. Now, we all know that that does not mean that you can get out your ledger and say to your spouse, Okay, honey, that was 489. You got one more, and we're done, all right? That's not how it works. 
We know what that means. The symbolism of the 70 times 7 is completion upon completion. It's fullness upon fullness. It's perfection upon perfection. The, the point being is that you should be willing to completely forgive anyone who sins against you anytime. Why? If you know that story, it's because your Father in heaven has forgiven you completely and fully and perfectly. And so that's the reason Jesus uses those numbers. He's not looking for some sort of mathematical exactness. In another word, real quick, if you look at the intertestamental writings of, of the Jews, of the people of Israel, you look at the intertestamental writings, you will see that they interpreted this passage in Daniel symbolically in the sense that they understood these numbers to be symbols and they also understood them to be pointing to a final jubilee. You see, we, we are the product of the modern world where we look for exactness in numbers. And we need to understand the cultural gap that exists between us and Daniel. So coming back to today's text, and let me just say, by the way, I do think these numbers are remarkably precise, though. There is a lot of, they're, they're roughly equivalent, but, but it's amazing when you really begin to work out the numbers. So coming back to today's text, 77s symbolize the completeness or the fullness of time. And what do we read in Scripture? Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so all this to say that the 490 years doesn't have to be exact, but as I said a minute ago, it's pretty close. So let's continue in verse 25. I will say up front that I think the ESV has a very bad translation of verse 25 here. It says this, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, and that's referring to the Messiah, Messiah means anointed one, and a prince, that's Jesus, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now this makes it sound like Jesus comes after the first seven weeks, after 49 years, but then there's 62 weeks, 432 years after Jesus comes. That's because the ESV translators have put the word then in there. Notice that they have a period after the seven weeks, and then they have then for 62 weeks. But those do not exist in the Hebrew text. That period is not there. Of course, there's no punctuation in Hebrew. But there's no reason to put a period there. And there's no reason to put the word then there. I think almost every other major translation translates it this way. And I'm going to give you the Christian Standard Bible translation right now. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the better translation makes it clear that the coming of the Messiah is at the end of the seven weeks plus the 62 weeks. Therefore, at the end of 69 weeks total, at the end of 483 years. Now, if you take the decree of Cyrus and you, you choose the 458 decree and you add 480 years, you roughly get to the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. But why does Gabriel mention these two periods, the seven weeks and then the 62 weeks? Is this just a creative way of adding up to 69? I don't think so. Here's what I think. I think the first set of seven is singled out, uh, first of all, first of all, to remind us of the Jubilee concept. One Jubilee has passed. Okay? The first Jubilee would come after the seventh set of seven Sabbaths. But from a strictly historical perspective, I believe that this first seven constitutes the time from the decree to rebuild the city to the end of the post-exilic prophetic period. This involved the reestablishment of Jerusalem, and the reconstitution of the Jewish people, the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of worship, the reemergence of the prophetic word. And this would include the ministry of all the post-exilic prophets. That would be Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, Obadiah, and Malachi. 
And so it would take us to the close of the Old Testament canon of Scripture. And the last written book of the Old Testament is dated roughly 49 years. 49 years after that 485 B.C. decree. Isn't it interesting? The last canonical book we have of the Old Testament is dated about 50 years, 49 years or so, after the decree of Cyrus to rebuild. And then what do we have historically after that period? History tells us that we have this great period of silence. It's called by the Jews the 400 years of silence. Roughly 434 years, that's 62 weeks of years worth of silence. And during that time there was no prophecy, there was no miracles, there was nothing. And during that time Jerusalem grew and developed, but it did so amongst much war and much turmoil, which is exactly what the text says. It says here, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. By the way, those troubled times, that troubled period of the 434 years are, is what the visions of Daniel chapter 8 and then what we'll see in Daniel chapter 10 and 11 focus on. So thus far we have the passing of 69 weeks of years. That's 7 plus 62. And so we see in this prophecy that God indeed has a very specific plot for history that was to be played out with remarkable precision. But there's more. Here's my next point this morning. The answer to Daniel's prayer reveals God's surprising plan for his Christ. Now, before we jump into verses 26 to 27, you need to know something about the grammatical structure of the text. This set of verses, verses 25 to 27, are not to be read in a linear manner according to the logic of prose that we are culturally used to in the West. Instead, the approach in ancient Hebrew literature was to take up a topic, develop it, develop it from a particular perspective, and then stop and start anew taking up the same topic again from another point of view. That's called parallelism in Hebrew literature. It's like reading a text in stereo. So verse 25, which we just looked at, explains the first 69 weeks. And then verses 27, 26 through 27, we are introduced to the 70th week. That climactic, ultimate jubilee 70th week is described twice. Once in verse 26... And then once in verse 27. And both of the verses have an A-B pattern. And what I mean by that is that the first part of verse 26 corresponds to the first part of verse 27. And the second part of verse 26 corresponds to the second part of verse 27. And you'll see that as we go. So let's look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. So who is this anointed one? It's the same anointed one from earlier in verse 25. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. But now we read that he is cut off. And this is referring to him being crucified by his own people. What we have here are echoes of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Cutting off. Now we'll come back to that verb to cut off a bit later. But now let's continue in verse 26. We read that this anointed one, the Christ, and the, also the word Messiah means anointed, so does the word Christ. This anointed one shall have nothing. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. The only worldly possessions that he owned, the clothes on his back, were gambled away by Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. Now here's where the text gets a bit perplexing. It says this, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now many people think this is referring to the, the Roman general Titus who came in and sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay, I do believe that A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem is in view here 
but I don't think the prince here is Titus. Other people believe that this is some future antichrist. But here's what I think. I think that prince who is to come is Jesus Christ himself. It's not the antichrist, it's Jesus the Christ. Now why do I say that? First, because of a very natural reading of this text connects the prince with the anointed one mentioned earlier in the verse. But more than that, the one mentioned in verse 25. Remember, remember what we read in verse 25. It said we read of a, a, the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There were two titles given. An anointed one and a prince. And so the first title, anointed one, we see at the beginning of verse 26. And then here in the second part of verse 26, we have Jesus called a prince. And he was the anointed one. He's the Messiah. But he was also the Prince of Peace. Is the Prince of Peace. But wait, Steve. I can hear you. I can hear your little questions coming out right now. Wait, Steve. It says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. If the prince is Jesus, then what does this mean? Well, friends, let me ask you. Who destroyed the city and the temple? In AD 70. Well, the Romans did, but whose fault was it? It was the Jews' fault. Matter of fact, Josephus even goes further than that, the famous Jewish historian. He says that the Jews were actually infighting so much that they had actually already destroyed much of the temple and much of the, uh, the city before the Romans had even gotten there. But what's really important for us to understand theologically is that the Jews sealed the destruction of the city and of the temple when they rejected their Messiah. Now remember, what was the placard that was placed over Jesus' head at Calvary? King of the Jews. It was his people who rejected him, John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yes, indeed, the people of the prince rejected the prince, and in doing so, they ensured the destruction of the city and of the temple. They guaranteed the destruction of the physical temple when they rejected Christ, the true temple. Remember Jesus' words in John 2, 19? Destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And so the text here describes that destruction that would come in A.D. 70. It says, its end shall come with a flood. I mean, the destruction was awful. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is what Jesus warned his disciples about in Matthew chapter 24. And he said it would come within their lifetime, and it did. It came in AD 70. This helps us understand why Jesus, right before that Matthew 24 Olivet Discourse, he says this in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And then he says this, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. It was the rejection of the Messiah that led to the desolation of the city and the temple. Let's lay verse 27 now on top of verse 26 and see the parallelism. These are not chronological, the parallel. Verse 27. Now referring again to the, the Messiah. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So just as the first half of verse 26 spoke of what would happen to the Messiah, namely that he would be cut off, so too we read here of the Messiah and what he accomplishes. He shall make a strong covenant for the many. With many, I should say. Now, the parallel is showing us what happened. Namely, that Jesus the Messiah was cut off, and in the very act of being cut off, 
he establishes a new, strong covenant. The verb back in verse 26 for cut off is a very interesting verb. The verb was used when referring to the establishment of a covenant. Two parties would cut a covenant. But the scripture also speaks of what happened when one who violates God's covenant, what would happen to them? They would be cut off. It's the same verb. So in the ancient covenants, an animal would be cut into two pieces. The parties of the covenant would then walk between the two cut pieces and they would thereby cut a covenant. And in doing so, they were saying that anyone who breaks this covenant should have done to him what happened to the animal. Namely, he should be cut off. And so that's what circumcision pictures. Okay, it's the cutting off of the male foreskin, but it's also in anyone that didn't do it would be cut off from their people. So Daniel tells us that the Messiah was cut off from his people. And this, this happened when Jesus took the covenant curses upon himself at Calvary. He was cut off from the land of the living for the sake of us who deserve to be cut off. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And the very process of him taking the curse and being cut off, he cut or enacted the new covenant. What do we say during the Lord's Supper every time we observe the Lord's Supper? This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The very act of being cut off from his people was the means by which Jesus cut a new covenant. That's the glory of what's being communicated to Daniel here. Years and years before it would actually happen. This makes it very clear what the covenant is in verse 26. I've already mentioned the covenantal context. The covenantal context of Daniel's prayer doesn't allow us to come and read this word covenant and make it some sort of agreement that an antichrist has with Israel thousand years from now. No, no, we have to interpret it within the context. The word covenant here needs to be interpreted within the covenantal context of the prayer. It makes very clear what the covenant is. Verse 26, he, the anointed prince, shall make a strong, that could mean firm or prevailing covenant with many. The new covenant promises, okay, first revealed in Genesis 3.15 and foreshadowed in the old covenant, will prevail. And so that leads me to my last point. The answer to Daniel's prayer reveals God's steadfast promise for his people. He shall make a strong covenant with many. What, is that, what does that remind you of? It reminds me of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The 70 weeks of Daniel, like Isaiah 53, reveal the good news that through the suffering of the Messiah, God would bring salvation to his people. And the text even gets more specific about the gospel. Look at verse 27. It says, And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. First notice that the death of Christ happens halfway through that week. Three and a half years. How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Roughly three and a half years. But more importantly, notice what he does. He puts an end to sacrifice and suffering. This is not some future antichrist breaking an agreement with the Jews and, and, and destroying a reestablished temple and, and for whatever reason some sort of reestablished sacrificial system, but rather it's the reality that Jesus Christ is himself the final sacrifice, no more are needed. The book of Hebrews was written to help us see this very thing, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done, it was finished. 
So Jesus put an end to sacrifice and offering. They were mere shadows, but he is the substance, the final sacrifice, the final offering. And that truth sheds light on the very last part of verse 27. We get to this last confusing sentence. Here we go. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now I think two things are happening here. Number one, this parallels the previous verse. And so this is again referring to the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem. The coming destruction in, in, in 70 AD. But why? Why does the destruction come? Why is the city made desolate? It says because of the abominations. On the wing of abominations. That's, what, that's the reason it's coming. Let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, when God's people worship God in ways that he does not prescribe, like the Asherah poles or the shrines in high places or the altars that they weren't supposed to build, what does God call those things? He calls them abominations. Abominations. The Israelites had filled the land with abominations. So, if Jesus is the final sacrifice, God's lamb without blemish, and people refuse to recognize him and instead continue to offer up the blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away sin, what is that? It's an abomination. The abomination that causes desolation was the continuation of the sacrifices that Jesus himself had done away with. And it led to the destruction of the temple once and for all in 70 A.D. So that's the 70 weeks. And it should be an encouragement to us. Why? Because the ultimate jubilee has been secured for all who are found in Christ. And we are already in that ultimate jubilee, but in an already not yet fashion. We talk about this all the time. It's been fully accomplished, yet it still is to be fully consummated at the second coming of Christ. It's been fully finalized, yet not fully realized. It's already not yet. And this was designed, this whole passage here is designed to give Daniel and the Jewish exiles and us great joy and great hope knowing that God has won. When it refers to the desolator at the end there, because it uses the article the before desolator, I think it's pointing to something other than a person. It's pointing to, to Satan himself. Satan has been defeated at the end of the 70 weeks. And so it should be an encouragement to us. And so to really encourage us, I want us now to back up to verse 24, and let's just review what the suffering servant accomplished on our behalf. And we'll close with this. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Number one, to finish the transgression. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Praise God that he's done that for us. Number two, to put an end to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Praise God, we are no longer enslaved to sin if we are in Christ. Number three, to atone for iniquity. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. As Deemer prayed earlier, praise God that Jesus came, our elder brother came, and he suffered on our behalf. He atoned for our sins. Verse 4, to bring in everlasting righteousness. 
Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The very righteousness of God has been counted to those who are in Christ. Glory be to God. Number five, to seal both vision and prophet. Now a little word here real quick here. This seal can either mean one of two things. It can either mean to shut up something so that it no longer can do anything, or it can mean to confirm or authorize it. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Here's what we read. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. 2 Corinthians 1.20. So yes, he is the final word. He is the one who, who authorizes all of God's promises. So praise God for that. But here's what I really think it means. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final word. The vision and the prophet, not prophecy, the vision and the prophet have been sealed. Verse 6, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, we do see some examples in the Old Testament of places being anointed, but usually people are anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed, and Jesus is all three of those. But Jesus is also the place. He is the holy of holies where the fullness of God resides. John 1 Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is, Jesus is the most holy place and he was anointed by the father. And we see that pictured at his baptism. Oh friends, this text is all about Jesus and what he accomplished. It's no more about some future antichrist and some bizarre reestablishment of useless sacrifices than the cow jumps over the moon is about the rise of farm prices. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27 is all about Christ and what he has accomplished. And so if you're here this morning and you have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I beg you to turn from your sin, put all your hope in Christ alone for your salvation, and you too will enter into the experience of full redemption, full restoration, full rest in Christ. You will enter into the ultimate jubilee. Lift your voice. It's the year of jubilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bring our worship service to a close, Lord, help us to see that no matter what someone may do with this text, no matter what interpretation one might come to regarding the, uh, the, the, the covenant there or anything else, Father, I pray that everyone would understand that this text, like every text in the entire scripture, according to Jesus in Luke 24, is a roadmap to him. So Lord, at the end of the day, no matter what path we take, let us see that this road leads to Jesus. And so this morning, Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted. Thank you for all that you've accomplished for us. Thank you. And Lord, we look forward to the day. We look forward to the day when, when we are with all of our, our fellow believers from every tribe and tongue, language and nation. We're with them around the throne, worshiping you. And so, Lord, this morning, may our closing song be a tiny little preview of that. So God, give us voices to sing, sing, lift our voice. It is the year of Jubilee. Father, help us to understand that we are in the year of Jubilee. We have full redemption. 
We have full restoration and we have full rest in Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.